Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Adrian Mayer, who's agreed to talk with us about her new book, Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. First, maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, I'm an I'm a historian of ancient science, and I'm also a classical folklorist. And in all of my works, I'm looking for historical and scientific realities, sort of germs or nuggets of truth, and um, the perceptive insights that can be contained in mythology, folklore, legends, and ancient literature and art. And uh, these insights, I think, have often been overlooked because, of course, they're expressed in mythological language, so people didn't realize that they actually can contain real knowledge based on observation. Um, some people have called me a historian of human curiosity. Um, I'm, I'm sort of seeking evidence for the first inklings of the scientific impulse in ancient and pre-modern cultures. Okay, that's great. So maybe tell us next how you came to write this particular book. Well, I started on gods and robots, uh, I guess, um, in my imagination. Uh, I've lived in Silicon Valley since 2006, so I've been surrounded by the advancing innovations and um, uh, in technology and AI, and so I'm very aware of all the modern desires to create artificial life, um, robots, and um, Making uh, making death an option, things like that, and uh, and of course AI and improving, surpassing nature, augmenting human powers, and as I say, striving toward immortality. And so, as a historian of ancient science, it seemed natural to me to maybe think about how deep are the roots of those um, desires. Uh, and it turns out they're very ancient indeed, going back to the time of Homer. If you look at myth. Hmm. So let's start with the dis, uh, the distinction you define as that which is between what is made and born. And you write that many historians point to the self-moving machines made by craftsmen in the Middle Ages, which often look or often took the form of small people or animals as the origin of the notion of the automaton or what we think of now as robots. But you argue that the idea of making artificial life was part of what you term cultural dreams, tracing all the way back to ancient writers in the Greco-Roman world, as well as in China and India. Yes, uh, for that book I asked, um, who first imagined robots, um, automatons, and human enhancements, and artificial intelligence? Now, historians of science uh, and scholars usually trace the first working robots to the Middle Ages, but... I wondered, could it be possible that the ideas and the concepts about self-driving devices and automatons and other kinds of artificial life, could they have been imagined long before technology made them possible? And I found that 
by the time of Homer, more than 2,500 years ago, Greek myths were already envisioning how one might imitate uh, and surpass nature by means of uh, what I'm calling biotechne. It's a Greek word for life through craft, and that would be the source of our word biotechnology. Um, and it's not just the Greeks who were imagining these things. I've, I've also found uh, some preliminary evidence that uh, people in ancient India and China were also imagining artificial life and robots. So can you comment on the difficulty of distinguishing between magical and technological means, as well as the related challenge of avoiding interpreting the past through the lens of a modern conception of mechanics and technology, for example? One of the interesting things is the um, is the phrase "made not born" that you mentioned earlier, and I think that's a really distinctive and important phrase in thinking about these myths, because uh, all of the artificial entities that were described in Greek myth were called or described as made not born, and that distinguished them from natural living things, from animals and humans who uh, were reproduced biologically. So that phrase, made not born, means that, that these entities were uh, products of technology. They were, they were fabricated with tools and skills. Um, and I focused on artificial life that was described as made not born. Um, and can you remind me what you just asked me? Oh, no, that's all right. Um, yeah, my, this... <laughs> I was going back to the made not born thing. but That's um, all right. I... The yeah. second part of the question was about um, avoiding interpreting the past through our contemporary lens, our, lens, our modern idea of uh, mechanics and technology. How, where would yeah, the pitfalls be there? Right. Um, I, I was very careful to include a glossary in my book so that um, I have the, uh, the commonplace definitions of the words that uh, appear uh, in my book and also the the way I'm writing about them. Now, we think of it, we define a machine as a device that changes the direction or magnitude of a force and an automaton as a self-moving entity that can carry out a task and uh, a robot is a really slippery term even today. Um, no one can really agree what it means, but it usually means some kind of self-moving uh, entity, usually in the shape of an android, that has some kind of power source. Um, so I, I think, as you said, it's, it's really important to make sure that we're not projecting our expectations and assumptions about machines and mechanics back to mythology. But uh, what's amazing is that people could actually visualize and imagine self-moving, lifelike artificial people and animals that were, in fact, programmed with specific tasks and they could sense and react to their surroundings and carry out, out uh, activities and decisions. And Important to keep in mind, we're talking now about ancient myths, and those are ancient science fiction stories. They're they're um, they're uh, fascinating because they actually uh, show people trying to imagine just what kind of wonders could be achieved if you had the technology of the gods. Right. So let's begin with the story of Talos and Medea. Uh, tell us about these characters and what they reveal about early Greek notions of technology and constructed beings. The most ancient uh, story we have of a of a robot is the story of Talos. He was a large, even giant, um, bronze automaton in the shape of a man, 
created by the god of invention, Hephaestus, the blacksmith god, and he was charged with defending the island of Crete against pirates and other invaders. And he patrolled uh, the kingdom of Crete by marching around that large island three times a day. Now, someone has calculated that he would have to travel about 150 miles an hour to accomplish that feat, but remember, we're talking about ancient science fiction stories here. Um, Talos was uh, made of bronze, programmed to repel the invaders. He could pick up large rocks uh, and throw them at intruders. He threw boulders to sink foreign ships, and he possessed another capability, um, in close combat, he could uh, pick up a victim, heat his bronze body red hot, and then hug the victim to his chest, roasting them alive. So he was quite quite a, a frightening um, uh, automaton. He's really he's really the first killer robot. And he appears. I'll just say that he appears in um, in the uh, epic poem about. Jason and the Argonauts and their quest for the Golden Fleece. He had uh, a kind of biomimetic system um, that powered him. So he is a robot. He has an internal power source. His animating force was Ikor, and that's the mysterious life fluid of the gods. And it, uh, the Ikor traveled through a single tube or vein from his neck to his ankle, and the whole thing was, the whole system was. Uh, sealed by a bronze bolt on his ankle, and it was the sorceress Medea who figured out how to destroy Talos by removing that bronze bolt. And what's amazing is that we have vase paintings from the 5th century BC showing uh, Talos standing there while Medea and Jason use a tool to remove the bolt. So this this is really a story of a robot created by technology and then destroyed by technology. I think it's that's an interesting lesson. I think it's amazing, too, that our first robot here is not only um, a servant and a soldier, but he's also a killer robot. It seems <laughs> a central idea that we just can't get away from. It's too delicious somehow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So next, uh, next you focus on something called Medea's Cauldron of Rejuvenation, and you call this story, and I'll quote you here, a quintessential example of mythical biotechnique to bring about unnatural extended life. So can you tell us about this story and how you see the titular object as a technological artifact? Well, yes, uh, Medea, as we, we've already seen, she's kind of a techno wizard. She knows how to hack into Talos's, uh system and um, disable him or neutralize him. She also possessed arcane knowledge of drugs, pharmaca, and biotechnology. Um, she was able to restore uh, the youth of Jason's elderly father. Jason was very sad to see how, how old and frail his father had become, and he asked uh, Medea to restore his youth. And she accomplished this feat, we're told in the myth, by boiling powerful herbs and other potent pharmaca uh, drugs in her special golden cauldron. And then we hear that she somehow drew out all of the blood from the old man's veins and replaced that blood with a secret concoction of uh, health-giving plant juices and other ingredients. And these were all brewed in her special uh, her special um, pot or kettle made of gold. Now, in antiquity, uh, people did recognize gold was a 
non-tarnishing metal and it was uncorrupted by by uh, chemicals or uh, uh, metals. And so it's interesting that they, they specified that her cauldron was made of gold. But what's interesting is that um, this succeeded after after Medea's, uh, um, I guess you'd call it operation, um, the old man's renewed energy uh, and his vitality just amazed everyone in, in the myth. Now, historians of medicine, they point out that Medea's uh, imaginary experiment, now listen, remember this is science fiction from mythology, it kind of foreshadows modern blood transfusions, especially if you think about the the ones known as exchange or substitution transfusion, where they take out a, a patient's blood completely and replace it uh, completely with some with a donor's blood. Hmm. And and lately too, there have been people that have been experimenting with young people's blood, injecting themselves with really young absolutely. plasma. Plasma. <laughs> yes, absolutely true. And I, I um, I hear about I hear about that a lot here in Silicon Valley. And so I did a little bit of uh, research into that, and I found that since 2005, blood exchange experiments with um, young and old mice mm-hmm. has been shown to rejuvenate the muscles and the livers of the older mice. So I think that is what people are relying on. <laughs> yeah, I've read about that um, in some science magazines, and and I've also read that the CEOs of the of Silicon Valley are kind of taking that and running with it. But clearly, it's a very <laughs> old idea. It's a timeless idea. That impulse uh, uh, um, for the fountain of youth is pretty pretty ancient. <laughs> and actually, that brings us to our, uh, my next question, because you mentioned that there's other interesting parallels between the story of Medea's cauldron and modern approximations in biology, such as the fear of unintended consequences, gray areas for ethical concerns, as well as blurred lines between charlatanism and science, hope and horror. Yeah, there's sort of a horror story uh, associated with Medea, Medea and her um experiments to rejuvenate people in another mythic adventure. Medea um, was said to have uh, demonstrated her powers by chopping up an old ram, an old sheep, and placing it in her golden cauldron, once again, uh, filled with uh, boiling water and various secret ingredients. And then, to everyone's uh, awe, uh, she pulled out a young lamb. Now, there's a bit of sleight of hand going on there, but uh, what's interesting is that there are a lot of vase paintings. It was a really popular uh, subject in antiquity uh, to illustrate this wonderful rejuvenation experiment. But then the process failed when it was applied to another human being, an an elderly king named Peleus, uh, who died when he asked his daughters to attempt to reproduce uh, Medea's methods uh, do to him what she had done to that old ram. Well, you can imagine uh, they chopped him up and put him in a pot of boiling water and it failed. He died horribly. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, not only did that have a bad ending, but that, that use of a ram and a lamb that in the ancient myth that kind of brings to mind the first cloned animal, um, Dolly, the sheep, who was brought to life in a special vessel filled with nutrients. I find that uh, very interesting. Hmm. So in chapter three, you look at examples of stories from ancient Greece that address immortality and eternal youth other than Medea's cauldron. And you say that this society was obsessed with these ideas and that they seem to feel that 
and I'll quote you again, to possess ageless immortality like the gods would be the ultimate achievement in a quest for artificial life. So the possibility of such a state also raises some philosophical and ethical questions. Can you tell us what you've discovered here? Yes, once again, I think there there really are some uh, interesting messages for people today. There are a lot of ancient tales uh, from antiquity, Middle Ages, uh, all the way up to modern times, about the quest to turn back the clock of aging and then uh, also becoming immortal. And those tales almost always backfire somehow. Either no one can find the exact right uh, fountain of youth or the formula is wrong or something else happens. The, the tales never end happily. And the message from antiquity seems to be that there's something very crucially human about the fact that we die, about the fact that we're mortal. And certainly the Greeks and Romans saw an important um, link between our inevitable death and living a good life, you know, being heroic, um, earning a glorious reputation in the afterlife. Those were all sought-after values. And mortals, if you think about it, we humans can be brave and noble. You can be self-sacrificing. You can be heroic. because and, and the reason is because the stakes are so high. The stakes are life and death. And if you think about it, no one would ever call the immortal gods courageous. Everything's a game for them. They never die. So the stakes are very low. Hmm. All right. So next you look at stories that center on the use of technology to make up for human frailty or vulnerability. And these two present a range of ethical quandaries and unforeseen consequences. So can you give us some examples of these? Well, as we saw, uh, Medea used a uh, kind of biotechnology um, in her cauldron experiments, but she also um, concocted drugs for Jason to make him into a Superman for a day. Uh, so that he could overcome some impossible obstacles. And Daedalus, um, the legendary craftsman of Greek myth, he borrowed um, the idea of birds' wings to achieve flight, but at great cost, he lost his son. Um, artificial improvements, like you say, to overcome limitations uh, and vulnerability of the human body, uh, maybe ex uh, to expand our natural strength, our sensory abilities um, by uh, maybe artificial means. Um, those are now known as human enhancement technologies. Uh, it sort of seems like cutting-edge science, and yet um, the idea of augmenting human capabilities is very ancient. I mean, you can even consider the very earliest tools, like hammers, spears, maybe bows and arrows. Those are all a kind of human enhancement because they extend a person's reach, their aim, and the, the force of their of their muscles. Um, so there were a lot of myths too that in, envisioned borrowing the powers of gods and animals to compensate for human weakness. The two examples I gave. Um, controversies arise now uh, over human improvements. Today we have a lot of human enhancements. We have um, uh, glasses. We have hearing aids. We have titanium joints. Um, pacemakers, bionic prosthetics, and stimulant drugs, those are all welcome, but then people get a little nervous and start to worry uh, when these uh, supernatural enhance enhancements um, seem to be slated for uses that might be questionable. 
Um, corporations have created lip reading and facial recognition um, AI, and then they claim that only good uses will be made of them, but we can think of a lot of scary uses that could be made of, of such technologies. Um, so there, there are a lot of practical and ethical risks that surround those at attempts to sort of upgrade human bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay, so chapter five focuses on elements from the mythic biography of Daedalus, whom you've already mentioned there. And this famously skilled craftsman and clever inventor is fabled to have created statues so lifelike they were thought to be practically alive. So tell us how you interpret the significance of these stories. Well, Daedalus was that legendary craftsman. Um, he's the one who uh, uh, he created the labyrinth, and then uh, he was imprisoned in the labyrinth, um, and he made uh, a set of bird, bird's wings for himself and his son. But he was also famous for inventing and creating animated statues. And we don't know whether these were thought of as statues that uh, actually moved, as many of the myths tell us, and many uh, historical accounts also say that he did create statues that could move. We do know that in antiquity, it was possible to make statues that could make sounds or lift their arms or open doors or nod their heads, blink their eyes, um, turn their heads, things like that. So he may have in, stood for uh, uh, engineers and craftsmen who made those um, amazing animated statues. But there were also... Um, uh, in antiquity, technological um, advances that allowed people to make extremely realistic sculptures that could fool the eye into thinking that they, they were moving or about to move or even breathing. And when you think about seeing these statues uh, by an oil lamp or moonlight at night, um, you can imagine how... Uh, how much awe and fear they might have uh, might have evoked. It's almost a, an uncanny valley effect. Hmm. So now we move on to two very well-known stories from Greek antiquity, that of Prometheus and Pygmalion, which are both stories that involve the creation of life through supernatural means. So starting with Prometheus, you write that, quote, the myth of Prometheus making the first people on earth is one of many ancient traditions demonstrating that human beings were once viewed as artificial creations. So this takes us back to our distinction between being born and being made. How are we to understand this myth then? Well, Prometheus was sort of the champion of human beings, and there was also uh, a mythological um, set of stories that said that Prometheus was the one who actually created all of the uh, first humans and animals. And there's a remarkable set of ancient carved gems uh, from the 4th century to the 1st century BC that show Prometheus as a craftsman making the first sort of prototype human beings. And what I think is really interesting is that he's not doing this by magic. He's not molding, you know, forms of men and women and then breathing life into them like the Adam and Eve story. Instead, he's creating them from the inside out, starting with the the framework, which is the human skeleton. So we have these uh, images of Prometheus using his craftsman's tools to make a human skeleton and then some of the gems actually show him adding flesh and muscles and and uh, um, and other uh, 
recognizable body parts to the framework. And I find that really fascinating uh, that people could imagine even human beings as a kind of artificial life. Mm-hmm. So the story of Pygmalion, the sculptor, presents us with a different scenario. Uh, in short, the talented young sculptor falls in love with his idealized, lifelike statue, and Aphrodite brings her to life in answer to his prayer. So in Ovid's version of this story, um, she's basically featured as a sex doll who remains nameless and without agency throughout, which is an early example of a problematic theme that we commonly see reenacted even today. So can you talk about this one? Yes, the um, the myth of Pygmalion uh, is very well known uh, today, and as you point out, it's very different from the other artificial entities that I've been discussing who were said to be um, made, manufactured um, through a kind of technology or craft. Now, Pygmalion was a sculptor, and he did carve an ivory statue of his ideal uh, woman, um, but she comes to life uh, magically. He did not create her as an automaton. In the myth by Ovid, uh, Pygmalion was a sculptor who di disliked real women. So he carved a, an ideal virgin um, out of ivory. He, he never named her, but later she was known as Galatea. Um, and he, he caressed this sort of fetish statue every night and prayed to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, to bring the statue to life. And she answered his prayer, um, bring, bringing the statue to life with magic. And it's interesting, in, um, in Ovid's telling, Pygmalion comes home, he touches the statue, and it suddenly blushes and comes to life, and they have sex. And what's interesting is that the poet tells us that her skin didn't even feel like human skin, but it was more like wax that becomes sort of warm and malleable when it's manipulated. And then... Ovid's words, the statue, and I quote, became useful by being used. I mean, this is uh, really rather startling. <laughs> the statue, um, she never speaks. She seems to have no desires of her own. She doesn't really seem to make any decisions or have any agency. Um, and she was uh, lifeless matter magically brought to life to have sex with Pygmalion. And that ancient description really does, as you say, call up images of modern sex dolls and robots that are idealized and fetishized substitutes for flesh and blood women. Hmm. Right. That's another element of the robot story that seems to be as old as time. That's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, all right. Well. Uh, chapter seven focuses on the god Hephaestus, who, as you pointed out, is the only god. Um, oh, sorry, as you point out in this chapter, he's the only god to have a trade or to be seen performing hard work, even sweating. He's working so hard. So he's well known for creating a variety of fabulous objects from artistic armor and fancy weapons to self-driving drink serving wheeled tripods, which I have to admit made me think of R2-D2 in, um, <laughs> in, in Star Wars, the um, Star Wars number six there. Um, but yeah. he's, al he's also famous for building essentially the first robots of Western civilization. So please tell us about him. Yes, well, as you described, Hephaestus is a working god, um, and he has marvelous skills. The gods all called on him when they required devices with some spectacular features and uh, awesome craftsmanship. 
Um, he's the one who created that great bronze robot, Talos, and his resume of uh, of creations, uh, things he manufactured include a golden hunting dog that always caught its prey, a pair of um, animated statues of watchdogs made out of gold and silver, and those were described in Homer's Odyssey. Uh, another um, writer tells of four robotic horses that could pull a chariot. Uh, he made... Uh, some golden statues of women who could sing for Apollo's uh, temple in Delphi. He was said to have fabricated that eagle that came at the same time each day like clockwork to torture Prometheus. And that story kind of makes me think of the idea of a drone. And Homer in uh, the Iliad tells us that Hephaestus also made automated bellows for his forge up in the heavens. The bellows obeyed his commands, uh, and they could blast more or less air as he needed it. And as you point out, he devised that wondrous fleet of uh, tripods or tables on wheels, uh, three, three-legged three um, tripods. And these self-driving ca- carts, uh, they brought nectar and ambrosia to the gods at their banquets, and then they returned when they were empty. And he also made some... Um, gates from Mount Olympus, the heavens, that uh, automatically open and close, like the first automatic garage doors. And I think the most wonderful of his inventions um, is a set of life-size, life-sized um, golden women who served as his assistants. And Homer, now we're talking about 700 B.C., described these servants as looking just like real young women but made of gold, and that they were endowed with um, sense and reason and even speech. And this is the most amazing part. Homer says they were equipped with all the learning of the immortal gods. And if you think about that, in other words, these these are lifelike automatons that possess what really amounts to a kind of mythological version of, of artificial intelligence. The ancient description from Homer, this is more than 2,000, 700 years ago, it reads like a modern AI project. It kind of merges human capabilities with big data, and then they do program tasks. Pretty amazing. That is amazing. (laughs) All right. In the next section, you look at Pandora, and she's another character from the Greek pantheon who was made rather than born, which I had totally forgotten that detail of her story. Um, (laughs) In fact, she's another creation of Hephaestus's designed to entrap and trick mortals. And most people associate her with the story of the box, as I did. Um, But not only do you say that this is likely a misunderstanding of the original Greek, but there's a lot more to her story. So can you tell us about this character? Absolutely. Pandora. Pandora's story is really quite thought-provoking. And as you say, uh, uh, we think of the fairy tale version of Pandora, um, in which she is a, a sort of naive, young, innocent woman um, who is uh, sent to Earth with a box, uh, and that she she's unable to restrain her curiosity and she opens the box inadvertently allowing uh, the release of all the afflictions and tragedies and miseries that afflict uh, humankind. But that is nothing like the original myth. In the original myth, uh, she was not a young, innocent woman uh, who could not restrain her curiosity. She was made, not born. She was 
deliberately created um, as a kind of AI fembot to look like a ravishing young woman. And she was commissioned by Zeus, all-powerful god Zeus, uh, who commanded Hephaestus to create this woman as a sort of trap to punish mortals for accepting fire, the technology of fire from Prometheus. And Pandora was programmed uh, with one task. Her mission on Earth was to insinuate herself into human society and then open a jar or urn, not a box, uh, that was filled with eternal suffering for humankind. So it's it's really a very, uh, it's a kind of um, cynical story, actually. It's kind of a myth that... Um, it, it has a lot of uh, um, kind of a viciousness uh, on the part of Zeus, very vindictive god, who sends her as a, as I say, as a fembot to punish humans. Yeah, I, I loved your use of the word fembot there. Um, <laughs> she's also like the original honeypot. And, <laughs> and I think that the, the maliciousness of Zeus is, is a really unusual element to that story. Or not unusual so much, but just, like you say, thought-provoking. It's very striking. And in fact, I think that that might relate to the modern fear that I've heard people um, express as, does technology favor tyranny? And in fact, in the ancient myth, uh, Zeus is a harsh tyrant, a very vindictive, harsh autocrat who uh, inflicts machines of malice on humans. Oh, that is interesting. I've heard that argument made too about other types of technologies that we're developing, whether it be AI or, you know, self-driving cars or any of these kinds of things. And they're, they're compared to Pandora's box with that same concern that if you've got a good actor who's in control of it, you might not have any concerns. But the problem, of course, is that there's bad actors in the world. And that That's just, right. We yeah. Never, we never know what's in I mean, her the um the urn uh carrying all these supposed gifts for humankind it's very ironic use of the word gift um that's sort of a black box uh we can compare it to the black box of ai technology hmm. <clears throat> okay your next chapter looks at examples of technology and invention from ancient history that so actual things that do resemble those in myths so in addition to some cleverly animated statues, unfortunately, many of these contraptions seem to be related to torture and inventive ways of killing people. This was a harrowing chapter. So uh, <laughs> what are some of your favorite examples from here? Well, uh, I can't say they're my favorite examples, but there is certainly a striking number of, uh, as I as I said, machines of malice or automatons that uh, wreak havoc on Earth uh, in the mythology. Um, one thing that has really struck me about uh, these myths of creatures that are made, not born, and self-moving devices, you notice that when they're up in heaven, used by the gods, and only used by the gods, sort of confined to the divine realm, they're kind of charming and benign. But once they get sent to Earth, then... Uh, Asimov's laws get broken. There's a lot of chaos and destruction, and the uh, the lesson seems to be that um, maybe they're fine to think about abstractly, but we should really worry about them when they're uh, interacting with human beings. 
That's a really interesting distinction, actually. Um, a lot of uh, metaphorical punch there. <laughs> okay. Um, well, throughout your book, uh, you reference contemporary examples that parallel um, ancient mythic artifacts, and that includes our own modern stories. You make references throughout to Blade Runner, the Blade Runner movies, as well as to Terminator, um, and some real developments in technology like artificial intelligence or the U.S. military's plans for the tactical assault light operator suit, which uh, listeners who are paying attention will realize spells Talos. So can you examine, or in examining uh, the myths, do they shed much light on our technological present? We've touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could expand. Well, I, uh, I think what's interesting is that uh, until now, some philosophers of science have claimed that no one in antiquity could have imagined self-moving devices or automatons before the technology uh, to make them existed. But how else do innovations and in, inventions ever come about, really, unless they're imagined and then visualized first. So imagination is the fuel for scientific advancement, and that's always been true. And uh, a lot of times uh, people say where science fiction goes, uh, then uh, technology often follows. Um, so it's, uh, I thought it was really interesting to compare uh, science fiction films. I I, I couldn't help uh, seeing how the myths sort of reverberate with uh, films like Metropolis from 1927 about a ro an evil robot woman who wreaks havoc uh, among humans. And then, of course, there's the Frankenstein story um, made into a movie 1931, and then the cult favorite Jason and the Argonauts from 1963, and then Blade Runner, uh, the Blade Runner series, all the way up to couple of years ago, and then lots of recent science fiction movies and TV shows like uh, Westworld and uh, Humans and other ones like that. I think these, um, the movies and then the ancient myths, um, I think as we've mentioned, uh, they imagine technology and they're really, myths and movies are, are cultural dreams. They're science fiction tales and the myths and the movies show how the power of imagination allows us to think about how artificial life might be created if only one had access to sublime technology and brilliant genius. So there's a kind of futuristic thinking um, in both the myths and in, in the movies. Wonderful. Well, Adrian, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, before we sign off, though, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Um, right now, I'm working on an article uh, comparing ancient and modern human enhancements. And even more exciting for me is I'm working, I've been invited to write a script for TED Ed Animated Lessons, uh, writing a script for a short animated video about the first robot, Talos. Oh, wow. I'll look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll thank you again. I really enjoyed your book. I was so glad to have the chance to chat with you in person about it. And I'll wish you a good evening. Thank you, Carrie.